This podcast is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is committed to keeping you ever current on the dynamic trends shaping the legal world. Learn more at pli.edu slash ftpod. Welcome to Fast Tracked, Emergent Issues in the Legal Profession, brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute. I'm your host, Jen Leonard, founder of Creative Lawyers. Buckle up as we hit the gas and explore the most dynamic trends shaping the legal world, from generative AI to DE&I and everything in between. I hope you'll join us as we explore the future of law today. On today's episode, we hear from Lisa Fairfax, Presidential Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Institute for Law and Economics at Penn Carey Law, and Dave Curran, Co-Chair of the Sustainability and ESG Group and Executive Director of the ESG and Law Institute at Paul Weiss, about the evolving state of ESG initiatives. I hope you enjoy this insightful discussion. Thank you to everybody for joining us on the Fast Track Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Leonard. On this show, we explore all sorts of dynamics that are converging in the legal profession to drive an era of unprecedented change. And to guide us through this complicated and exciting time, we welcome to the show experts in each of the areas that we're highlighting this season. And today we will focus on the really interesting and emergent area of ESG. And we are thrilled to be joined by two of the world's most renowned experts on ESG, Professor Lisa Fairfax. And Professor Fairfax is joined by Dave Curran. So it's wonderful to have two frequent collaborators and experts to help us better understand this really interesting topic. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Likewise. Great to to see you, Jen. You've done great things at Penn. So it's a pleasure to, as has Lisa, so it's a pleasure to get on board. Thank you both so much. So I know this is a topic that some people may be really familiar with and other people may have heard a bit about, but don't really know the ins and outs of what ESG means or understand it at a very high level. So I thought we would start by level setting for everybody. And Lisa, I would just love if you could introduce us to the topic of ESG by defining for us what ESG actually is. What does it mean? Well, right. There's lots of confusion out there about what ESG is and what it means. On the one hand, it's quite simplistic. ESG, that acronym stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And by governance, we mean corporate governance. But what ESG is supposed to do and how companies are supposed to use it, I think, is what confuses a lot of people. At the basic level, what ESG is designed to do is to give companies and others a tool by which they can assess issues around the environment, social issues, Uh, and governance issues, while also using governance tools, uh, if you will, uh, to focus on really important issues. Um, And those issues that are being focused on, particularly in the corporate setting, are being done so that companies can get a better understanding of the risk and opportunities associated with environmental, social, and governance issues. And I think that is what people at the core mean who really understand it mean when they say, right, ESG, 
right? And I think that's the way it's being used by most institutional investors. That's the way it's being used by most business people as a tool for assessing risk and opportunity. And I think as a tool for understanding impacts, that is the impacts that companies and businesses are having on the broader, on the broader society. Excellent. Thank you for that comprehensive definition. Anything to add, Dave, to what Lisa has laid out here? Yeah, I would just, and it's Lisa nailed it on the head, of course. What I would add is part of what has created the confusion, in particular within the legal community, is focus on the acronym versus the substance of what's within the relevant. I think it creates a lot of headlines and it gives people room for cynicism and and, uh, skepticism, when in fact, most major organizations that have any kind of public profile have been engaged in ESG for many years. They just haven't called it that. They call it a lot of different things, whatever you call it. For lawyers, it's really important to note, and this is a question I get every week, what is their role? How do they intersect with this arena? It is really core to understand that it's governance at its essence. And so whatever commitments, obligations, engagement that organizations have in the environmental and social realm, they won't uh, advance without appropriate governance. So the ability to track, measure, monitor, and report on things, which is really the, the meat and potatoes of what lawyers do. And so if you clear the debris of what are what some of these issues which have become politicized, unfortunately, it, it, at its essence is things like documentation, things that lawyers do well. And so that's where we like to, I, I like to describe it as getting back to center court, you know, as a sports analogy, the if you know tennis, you know, you can get a great forehand or backhand, but you got to get back to center court and anticipate the next hit. And that's what lawyers really should be focusing on. Thank you both so much. And I know we'll get into the politicization of the terminology. And I really think it's helpful grounding, Dave, this idea that the governance piece of this is the kind of work that lawyers have always done to support their corporate clients. As somebody who is is not an expert in ESG, I have noted in the last few years a, a large uptick in the number of conversations about ESG. And my sort of dawning of awareness came when the corporate roundtable issued a letter around, you know, a motivation to deliver to stakeholders versus just shareholders. And I'm curious whether that letter and the sort of sea change that it appeared to create is related to this increased interest in ESG. Lisa, are they related at all? They're absolutely related. I want to back up, but also double down on something Dave said around ESG. Oftentimes, when people think about those three letters, they say a whole bunch of things, which we can't get into. But one (laughs) of the things they say is that the G appears unconnected to the E and the S, right? The E is about the environment and climate change and water rights. The S is about social issues and equity issues and human rights and like now we have this strange G sitting over there that seems to be, I don't know, okay? mm-hmm. but, but Dave is absolutely right that the G is, is is inextricably linked with the E and the S. And those who created that moniker, ESG, really understood. They actually wanted to put G first, but they felt like it didn't sound right. <laughs> but the G is at the center because it is the way that you actualize on the E and the S. And corporations have been doing this forever. They've been thinking about what are the risks and opportunities associated with climate change and weather-related incidents. And we don't have to look too far to understand that when flooding and earthquake and these other things occur, they have real economic impact. How do we put the G, that is the governance policies in place, the practices in place to kind of think through those 
risk and opportunities. The same thing is true with regard to those S issues, whether or not you're talking about your workforce. And we don't have to look too far to understand what happens when, right, there's a great resignation, what happens when there are strikes and challenges with labor, right? We have to understand the risk and the opportunities there. But most importantly, we cannot, as companies, respond to these things in an ad hoc, you know, deer in the headlights way. We have to have the policies and practices, right? And that's governance 101. Um, And how do we hold ourselves accountable, right, for the commitments that we're making around the E and the S? We have to have, right, these kind of target-related, clear goals, policies, practices, and that is all about governance. So the governance is really the anchor um, to the E and the S first. And secondly, what does stakeholderism have to do with it? On the one hand, Dave, absolutely right, right? Companies have been thinking about ESG. Companies have been thinking about their other stakeholders since the dawn of the corporation, right? Uh, In corporate law, we talk about something called the Burl-Dodd debate that dates back to the 1930s, right? When a Harvard Law School professor vehemently talked about the fact Um, that if you want long-term sustainability in the corporate realm, you can't just focus on short-term profits. You have to take into account your employees, your customers, your creditors. You have to understand what they want to create loyalty amongst that body and to create long-term sustainability. So absolutely, there is a connection between stakeholderism, right, which I use as a term to suggest that the corporation needs to focus on right? The interests of stakeholders beyond the uh, shareholder, right? Including the shareholder, but also beyond the shareholder. And this notion of ESG, which is because EFG, of course, connects with other stakeholders. So we need to be thinking about, right, our impact on these other stakeholders and where they create risk on the one hand, yes, but also opportunities, business opportunities, on the other hand, that we can, so that we can better ensure our long-term health and sustainability. That's fantastic. And thank you both for the explanation, because to me, it sounds like the focus on stakeholders as opposed to only shareholders creates this complexity because it's a richer, more diverse ecosystem of people and uh, organizations that you're trying to serve. And it sounds to me like the role lawyers can play under the G is really organizing and creating alignment and commitment devices to make sure that we're sort of moving in an organized way, even as the ecosystem in the stakeholderism approach changes around us and perhaps the goals grow or adapt over time. So that is a really helpful way to understand it. Is, is there anything else that, that we're missing with that sort of description? No, and I would just add, and Lisa, Jen, and we've talked about this, the this coincides with the sea change of what's expected of lawyers and their roles and responsibilities within operations within society. So this isn't something in isolation. All of the transformative elements that are driving change in the legal ecosystem come to play very conspicuously in the ESG arena. So you mentioned the organizing capabilities and the governance. At the end of the day, the lawyers are the fiduciaries for these organizations, and they're the quarterbacks also for the myriad of challenges. And ESG is an amalgam of reputational, essentially reputational risk. And the lawyers are best suited to address this. One of the challenges has been law schools are far behind in recognizing that. And uh, you and Lisa and a few other professors are pushing these 
giant boulders uphill. Absent that, lawyers are left with confusion about what it is, why are, how are lawyers involved, is it really legal risk? All of those questions could actually be pretty easily answered if there are direct connections to lawyering here all over the place, and policies, procedures. Doc, it's all about documentation. What are you saying? Where are you saying? And how are you saying it? And how are you pressure testing the information that you're providing to some third party, which is the trigger for legal risk? And I would also add, both with regard to businesses and with regard to law firms and lawyering, the magic, if you will, of ESG is this idea that we have to start breaking down silos. You know, too often some of the risk, <laughs> a lot of the risk is the fact that we don't know what everybody else is doing, right? What's getting some companies in trouble, right? What's making it more challenging to engage in appropriate legal representation around these issues is like, we don't understand that our marketing department has already made a commitment that our <laughs> CEO uh, contradicted, right? We, we don't uh, appreciate that something's happening over here with regard to human resources that is creating liability over here with regard to something else. And what ESG is saying is that you have to, I'm a huge sports fan, so absolutely, you have to really quarterback this thing. And you can't quarterback if you can't see the entire field. And you have to be able to break down those barriers. Someone has to be able to kind of see all of the different things that are happening because all of the, they are all connected. And you, and you talked about complexity. Yes. And that's what we de- do as lawyers. I think break down that complexity or at least allow our clients to better understand how to get their arms around that complexity uh, in ways that allow them to really take advantage of really sometimes what that complexity can mean for their organization. Lisa, I love what you're talking about here because it gets to the heart of corporate strategy and being able to actually advance what you're trying to do from having that quarterback perspective. And I want to connect what you're saying um, with the comment that Dave just made about legal education. And you know, anybody who's been to law school, teaches in law school, there are efforts to have more cross-disciplinary approaches, certainly, but frequently the classes themselves are siloed and there's a lack of understanding as to how everything is combined and how the lawyer's role really impacts that broader strategy. So I'd love to hear from you, Lisa, as somebody who really focuses on teaching law students ESG through their corporate classes, how you help the law students as new lawyers with unformed ideas of what a lawyer's role is, understand how the world is changing to make their ambit broader and how they can be developing the skills and the knowledge to be able to contribute to all the things that you're both talking about? That's a great question. And and I will tell you that it's really actually a back and forth. The law school students are helping me as much as I'm trying to um, provide some window and insight into how they're going to practice on the ground. And a A lot of what I'm understanding around what's happening in this world actually comes through my relationship with practitioners like Dave. Like he's experiencing this right real time. And at some level, law schools have depended upon this kind of apprenticeship model, which is, right, we'll teach you the old stuff in the books, the black letter, and then we'll send you out into the world and somehow the law firms are going to help you um, to really understand how to put those tools to work and to to practice real time. And so it it is about both the law school, I think, and law firms kind of thinking about what does training really look like in terms of the way in which they are shifting expectations with regard to what clients need and expect from 
their lawyers. So I think from my vantage point, I really do just try to talk to them about what is this thing called ESG? Let's demystify it, <laughs> right? What does it mean? What is its origin? And right, also talk uh, about lawyering and what will lawyering in this field look like? How will we break down silos? What, why disclosure is so important? Why governance is so important, right? What are the accountability tools at our disposal? And the reason why I say my students are helping me as much as I'm helping them, because many of them have backgrounds that are very helpful to giving great perspective around this. Whether or not it's right, business school, some of them have human resources background and all of them, many of them come from other countries where they're so far ahead of this around these conversations that we're moving the needle about the conversation. And it's a lot. And I know I'll let Dave take over from this. And a lot of it is there, these students coming in with this expectation about what companies can and should be doing. I uh, That's kind of creating change in the legal world and in the business world. Yeah, I emphatically agree and have experienced exactly the same as Lisa's just described. Law schools actually shackle people and frankly, take away their innovation and ideas. They Most of these people in the generation that is entering law school, especially if they've been in other, had other experiences, like you said, in business or law, in business schools or businesses, they know much more about this than lawyers do. Then you go into the legal ecosystem and they try and drain you of that and put you into traditional paradigms. So it's interesting when you talk to young lawyers who come out of great schools like Penn, it's like you're sparking something that they had and that they forgot about. Whenever I'm, I'm talking with them and say and demystify what ESG is, they go, oh, that's what it is. Oh, yeah, I know about that. I'm very interested in recycling. I'm interested in, in this. Many of them have been involved in businesses and in their own personal lives, seeking these things out as consumers uh, of businesses. They know it's actually common sense, you know, using less water, less plastic, polluting less, recycling making sure that, you know, you don't have massive forest fires and these kinds of things, wildfires. These are things that commonsensically people understand. The legal structure hasn't found, the reward system hasn't found those traditional lanes of travel. It doesn't fit neatly into a pocket and it's not where uh, they are going. If you're, if you want to be a quote litigator, you should understand ESG because you need to understand the consequences of litigation and the blast zone and how you defend a case, for example, for a company is very different today, especially if it's one involving an ENS issue than it was five years ago. But the training system really isn't focused there. It's on federal rules of state rules of civil procedure and litigation tactics, which are, of course, important. These existential, more existential issues are sort of trapped in limbo because the legal system is not caught up with the reality. I can tell you that it's very different in, in, in Europe. So even if the law schools aren't teaching it, right out, these young people and new lawyers get it because their clients are deeply in it in Europe. It, U.S. is far behind. When you say it's different in Europe, Dave, do you mean the way that law firms approach it, the way the government thinks about it, the way the entire society thinks about these issues? Yeah. So for starting with society, I mean, some of these issues, almost all of the E and S standards and frameworks, which are, after all, what drives engagement here. Keep a little bit of background for the viewers here. The one of the, and I call it the super law, 
Um, many of the commitments and obligations made by companies and other organizations, law firms and you know other uh, entities, are not driven by legal requirements. And I think this is one of the things that confuses lawyers. So there's no such thing as net zero as a legal obligation. It's not a requirement anywhere. Yet we see companies making commitments and pledges in that category. There's no requirement it, for the most part. There are some exceptions. So as a general matter, there's no global requirement that a company use less water, plastic, that they engage in um, paying a living wage. All of these issues, which are S and E issues, are, quote, voluntary. And the mistake is that lawyers have made traditionally is, oh, they're not required by law, so therefore we don't need to disclose them, and therefore we don't need to lawyer them. That's the gap that we need to fill, because they do need to be documented. You can't just say that you're doing something and not have the substantiation for it, which is where the lawyers come in, pressure testing this information. So in Europe, which is way ahead of the U.S., these, especially in the environmental context, not as much in the social context. But in environmental context, the European standards and frameworks for which these global companies, including U.S. companies, subscribe are mostly from voluntary, not-for-profit organizations. They're not coming out of Brussels as a requirement. The regulators in Europe are now catching up with the business requirements to regulate areas around disclosures and corporate governance. But they didn't start there. They started with acronym organizations who got voluntary engagement from all sorts of large companies who then started talking about what they were doing publicly. And then that wave came to the U.S. companies, whether they liked it or not, had to join in that because they were losing consumers, customers, and employees, the key stakeholders in this mix, investors. And so that's the reason why this confuses lawyers is it didn't start with regulations or legislation. And regulation legislation is barely catching up with the reality of what organizations are actually doing. So if I could stay with you just for a minute, Dave, and ask a follow-up question about that. You run and co-run an innovative practice group at Paul Weiss that focuses on advising clients about these issues. But like you said, the advisory services might not neatly fit into what clients expect to go to a law firm for guidance around, particularly if the commitments are being driven less by legal requirements and more by shifting social norms. What does the sort of engagement look like between clients and firms with ESG advisory practices? Are firms going out to clients and saying, look, you're making these commitments and you know we want to ensure that you have governance practices that are actually allowing you to, to align your actions with commitments? Or are clients coming to firms saying this is becoming too complex and we need help? Um, or is it a blend of the two? How do we raise awareness and connect those two parts of the ecosystem? It's definitely a blend, but I would say that when we talk about lawyers, we have to separate out lawyers and law firms relative to lawyers in other environments, in particular in-house roles. Lawyers in-house have been more aware of this and further ahead than their counterparts at law firms. They have been dealing with reputational risk issues for the consumers, customers, employees. They have a myriad of these challenges. And so from day one, when we set up this practice, we've had inbound interest from some of the most influential companies in the world, because they actually have far forward programs and have welcomed the fact that lawyers are involved versus consultants, for example, without legal training, because they know that the stakes are high and they know that they have to get this right. And that the reckoning today is different than it would have been five years ago from stakeholders. So 
you've seen this in greenwashing cases. You've seen this in government investigations. The consequences and stakes are much higher than they were some years ago. Our in-house lawyers, have, the ones at you know, forward-moving companies get this. They've always gotten it. There's been no argument. In fact, the discussions I had early on with this practice is, where have you been all my life? Essentially, <laughs> why haven't other firms done this? And of course, other firms rapidly went in and set up ESG practices. So there's been no shortage of interest from in-house lawyers. The real challenge has been, frankly, law schools and law firms. Ours, we happen to have a, a, a unique leader in our firm who saw this right away and understood it and has supported this initiative when the rest of the community was still trying to figure things out, frankly. And But it's happened rapidly with the with the advance of disclosure regulations, in particular in California, the SEC's proposed rulemaking, the CSRD and other uh, disclosure frameworks in Europe, American companies have woken up and realized this is legal, this is documentation, this is where we need our lawyers. So European law firms were ahead of U.S. law firms in that regard. They've had specialists in this area for years. So it wasn't, it's not new to them because it's part of the fabric of their societies. Yeah, and I, and I would just add, and there's a phrase that Dave used that's escaping me now, but you know, what we're seeing in the business and the legal world is that companies have already taken on this risk. They've already made these commitments. You know, one of the ironies is you know, kind of the political discourse suggests that outside groups kind of making them meet targets, make and yes, <laughs> except for the fact that companies, they've already done it. <laughs> they've already made the net zero commitment. They've already said that, you know, they, you know, condoled certain work practices. They've already said that they've made, you know, one, one of the reasons why we are here, where we are today in an, in an environment where companies are particularly vulnerable is because they've already made the statements and the statements are quite specific. They've already made commitments and those commitments are quite specific and measurable. And so then when people start going to see to what extent are you living up to the promises in those commitments, it's kind of very easy to start with, you know, saying, you know, you're not doing what you said, you're not doing what you're supposed to be. And there is the risk. <laughs> and I think what, to really underscore Dave's point, you know, one of the problems is, you know, companies weren't fully appreciating that just because this isn't something that you put in your SEC filing doesn't mean that you can just say it without any repercussions, right? So, you know, what has far outstripped mandated disclosure has been voluntary disclosure. The vast majority of S&P 500 companies have some form of voluntary disclosure around the E and the S and the G. And it's been out there for several years running, not just in terms of freestanding reports, but also over 90% of companies have something on their websites. The vast majority of companies now have board committees with oversight structures. Th these are issues that are now being embedded in so many different corporate areas. And kind of the law and lawyers are playing catch up, right? As they're trying to figure out, okay, how can we make sure, right, that number one, what we're saying is aligned with what we're doing, <laughs> and number two, the promises, goals, targets that we've created, we are all we have some kind of benchmarks and right policies and practices to try to get us there because that's also it's not aligned with what we're saying. You you can't. I think companies were under the illusion that they can say we're going to be net zero 
in 2050 and no one was going to ask them, what do you mean by that? How's that going to work? <laughs> right? That they were surprised when they got that like second question. Uh, and they, yeah. like, you were the new world. People are going to follow up now. Um, and by people, I, I mean your stakeholders with, with a lot who care about these issues and with a lot of power, whether or not those are institutional shareholders or employees or customers. There are a large group of people who are watching uh, and have the tools at their disposal to ask the follow-up question and force an answer. Yeah. The companies. I'd love to double down on a point that Lisa just made that I think has been in the media on this, that has been one of the many misconceptions about the space. Everybody talks about shareholders and investors. And without a doubt, businesses are structured to return and reward investors. What drives these changes in the, in the, certainly in the near term are the employees and consumers and customers. And their lawyers, they're focused on regulatory filings and potential legal consequences. When in fact, these big businesses have an existential risk by, by, by misleading the public alleged, you know, if, if that's a problem, they, as Lisa said, they can't just say, that you're doing things. You can't say you have a product or a service and not have it. <laughs> you can't say that product has certain attributes and not have it. That's just basic business and basic legally. What everybody's gotten off from here is they thought that these were esoteric or uh, platitudes or puffery or aspirations. Now, as Lisa said, actually not really. Stakeholders are pretty sophisticated and they're watching and listening and learning to what you're saying. And I heard an enforcement official at the SEC say, if you do it, you've got to say it. If you say it, you got to do it. And that's pretty basic lawyering. You cannot, and there's arguments about what's material and whether it's, if in fact you're putting it in your marketing materials, on your products and your website, and definitely if you're putting it in some kind of sustainability report or filing, regulators, litigators, and employees and others will be looking at it. Will they prevail in a case, which is the way lawyers always look at it? Who knows? In the meantime, you have uh, public relations, substantial public relations issues, including with your own employees, which are the worst kind uh, uh, of all, because you don't want to be fighting with your employees about things that they say you're not speaking the truth on. This is not a good era for that. So with the population of employees in the age groups of the demographics and psychographics that they have, the change has shifted to them. Investors catch up with those constituents. It's not the other way around. Investors are not leading what companies are doing. Their employees are the ones that are leading and their consumers are the ones that are leading what companies are doing. And so um, the era where they wouldn't be scrutinized or wouldn't be considered in need of substantiation is probably over. It's really interesting what you're both saying about this practice area and this area generally, because, you know, we talk about design thinking and human centric design of solutions. And I think going back to Lisa's point, traditionally lawyers craft the frameworks within which everybody operates, right? Lawyers make a decision as legislators or practitioners or judges about how everybody behaves in the structure. And here we have almost the reverse, which is the decision makers in response to stakeholderism have made public statements. And now the lawyers are coming into sort of craft solutions that are centered on the human beings in the in this context as society. And I'm curious, Lisa, it's a little bit of an unfair question because it's a prediction question, but we've seen this sort of, you know, ideological shift over the last few years of embracing stakeholderism and then pushback on stakeholderism. 
And what I'm hearing from both of you is that it's not necessarily the rigid structures we're used to creating the rules, but society and the way it's changing, necessitating structure. So in the future, do we think that as a result of this sort of messy backward way of putting organization on it, we learn lessons that we then, you know, maybe when things settle a little bit, are able to put into a legislative framework or a regulatory framework, or is that even desirable? Would it be better to continue in this sort of a posture? So that's a big question. <laughs> that was a lot. I, was a lot. I, I know. Mean, that was a lot. So, you know, what I would say is that in many ways, Regulation and legislation has always played catch up. You know, we their businesses are usually far outside, far beyond the legislators, and they kind of come in at the end. And oftentimes, by the time the fight is over about what actually is going on, the legislation is outdated. <laughs> so they pass something. It's like the moment has you know, and I think you see that. A lot, you know, certainly, and some of it is good. Legislation and regulation requires a deliberative process, et cetera. But oh, in many instances, kind of the innovation it has already happened, and we're just trying to create some baseline, you know, to create some guardrails and create some level of consistency so that we can kind of compare what companies are doing and hold them accountable, et cetera. So that's my answer of saying, I think it's always going to be that way. <laughs> I am, what I hope it's uh, in the sense that I don't believe that we will be able to, if you will get out in front of it, if that's what you're thinking, that in fact, we'll always be behind it. The hope is that we won't be as reluctant as we seem to be now uh, in acknowledging the shift that is upon us. Right. I, I do think our regulators have had many opportunities to weigh in more, to do more, to lead more around these really important issues that businesses have been grappling with. And to Dave's point, you know, a lot of what has happened has been because there's been a vacuum, quite frankly. Europe and, and other countries have imposed regulations on U.S. companies doing business outside of obviously our borders. And when that has occurred, U.S. companies have kind of said, listen, we need some harmonization. We need some, right? we need you to, and the U.S. has been wringing their hands. Oh, this is not that important. We don't have to, you know, and it's like, no, get on board. <laughs> we are actually in some ways begging you to lead around this and to bring some coherency, right? We need your expertise. And, and, you know, it is unfortunate and quite frankly, a really significant missed opportunity that our regulators are stepping up and kind of doing what needs to be done um, in what is clearly uh, an area that is right for kind of leadership, coherency, and critical guardrails. So and that's a long way uh, of yeah. saying it's going to we remain I am quite messy. I am, and I think the biggest lesson for me to learn is once the business interests begin to call out for help, we need to respond in a mm -hmm. much more comprehensive way. Well, that was a very meta example of what you have described lawyers doing, which is you took my very messy, disorganized question <laughs> and turned it into a very lovely, structured and organized response. So thank you. And 
And I want to sort of flip the coin here. We've been talking about businesses and how lawyers counsel businesses on their ESG efforts, but I'm really curious about what ESG means in the legal profession itself. We have so many problems in our profession. We have a civil justice crisis where 92% of legal needs go unmet. We have an innovation and well-being crisis, a diversity crisis. How can we think as lawyers about turning the lens on ourselves and using ESG as a framework for responding to some of the problems we've created as a self-regulated profession? Dave, I'm going to start with you as somebody who sits in a law firm, how you think about law firm ESG internally. Yeah, there are a lot of components to that. And I'll, I'll start with the fact that in my career, I've never seen an area where lawyers, advisors swim alongside their clients in dealing with the very same issues that the clients are wrestling with. So this is another thing that throws lawyers off. They're so used to this detachment and this arm's length. I provide intellectual property advice to you, antitrust advice to you, M&A advice to you. I, as a lawyer at a law firm, I'm not going to be experiencing that myself, but I'm going to advise you about these issues and these issues, and then the wall is separated. In this case, I think one of the reasons why it's so challenging for lawyers, it, it creates a lot of discomfort because it requires lawyers themselves, in-house and outside, and at law schools, to really examine where they are in this ecosystem and where there might be gaps. And I'm, I actually think that this is a golden opportunity, actually the first opportunity I've seen for people who want to do the right thing to be able to have the impetus from the outside to do it. There are always rationales and reasons not to do things. In this case, there are compelling reasons for lawyers to become engaged, learn more about this, and actually lean in. Examples are legal requirements that apply to law firms that historically had no relationship to those requirements. California legislation is one of many examples, but these are important issues that law firms themselves have to contend with. Law firms are vendors and service providers and are in the ecosystem with their clients. Those clients are demanding a lot more transparency and information. Now, some of it makes no sense. You know, if you look at it, even if you are supportive of it, having, having to get to ground zero or to a center court on it is, is challenging. For example, a non-legal requirement, as I mentioned earlier, a great example is diversity, equity, and inclusion. If you look at it, it's actually, it's not a legal requirement to be diverse, equitable, or inclusive. It's the, it's almost the reverse of it. It's, you can't violate the law, discriminate. That's a very different way of looking at things. And I think the training for lawyers really creates challenges for them to think this through more strategically and more from a, a real-world standpoint. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, they think of a lawsuit as we have to respond, quantize, contain. I think our clients today, companies today, are looking upstream to say, how did this law for a lawsuit actually happen? Which is, you know, lawsuits aren't good. It's not good news when you're at a company, you get a lawsuit or an investigation. So it, it definitely puts the, it puts the profession itself looking at itself in a very different light. And as I said, when you're in the same requirement zone as your clients are, you are suddenly thinking, and that detached objectivity isn't as convenient an ally as it used to be 
It's like, you're in this mix with us. <laughs> Just like everybody else, we're in the same society doing the same things. We're, you know, we fly on planes, we work in buildings. And so it's going to be, it's a reckoning for the legal profession to actually consider these aspects of it. And it's very challenging. If you, if, you know, it's like, what's the, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, you can't solve problems with the same mind that created them. And the infrastructure for law is designed to self-insulate lawyers from a lot of this stuff. And it's just, it's not working. And it's quite clear that lawyers, you know, who resist it, don't understand that it, Tang, you're it. You're in the same boat with, you're in the same lifeboat with, we're on the same earth with our clients. And that's not convenient for lawyers to think that way. Definitely not. And Lisa, I'm curious whether you have, you know, seen a distinction between the profession and all the cl corporate clients that the profession serves. I'm wondering what stakeholderism looks like in the legal profession, because it seems that there are pressures from society on all of our corporate clients, but maybe not awareness and the same types of pressure on us. So how we drive change in the way that, that Dave's talking about in our industry. Yeah, you know, I think this has been a longstanding problem that, you know, corporations and businesses, um, you know, in the same way that I, I said that they're, they're kind of far ahead of the regulators, they're far ahead of the law firms. You know, you I'll circle back to something David said when he said, when we started this practice, people were like, where have you been? <laughs> and, you know, we've been grappling with these issues and not sure kind of how best to, and, and it, it's because law firms have been set up in a very particular structure that hasn't really, I mean, it is true, it's starting to change. The law firm as a business and as a profession is starting to change, but gradually and, you know, kicking and screaming. And right, companies are constantly changing and constantly applying, you know, and so they are much more likely to be seeing with these issues, trying to grapple with them. I think they have a different set of stakeholders that are pushing them farther than the law firm, which at some level has been insulated. And, and has. And that insulation actually has, I think, undermined the ability to be good, to be and give good counsel, right? Because like you're behind the ball and don't fully appreciate why these reputational, social, environmental, whatever issues are in fact legal and business issues, right? So that there's that piece of it, but, and you're not understanding how it applies to your own business. The law firm is a business, right? And to the extent that businesses have to grapple with changes in demographics, with kind of workforce culture and workplace culture, I was at a panel, I think a year ago, and someone said, you know, what's ironic is you have these law firms that create these great policies and practices and documents about kind of workforce and workplace rights and, you know, all of this stuff. And then if you turned it around and tried to apply it to their own workplace, it'd be like, yikes. Any. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, what do our promotion numbers look like? What do our recruitment look like? How are we treating our, you know, these types of things? Very, you know, it, it's rare that we shine the spotlight on our profession, on ourselves in a bunch of, in, in ways that I think it's starting to happen, but a painful process, a little bit because it's rare for us to do it a comprehensive way. It only takes, it usually takes some shock moment, some shock to the system to have us thinking 
through. Um, but I think you only have to look at what's happened in the workforce, right, with regard to law firms to, to see that there's a reckoning coming. And the law firms that embrace it and think about the risk and opportunities there and put in place real change will be the law firms that are really sustainable into the next century. Yeah, they're really unique corporate animals, it seems. And uh, we've talked on another episode about the challenges in leading a law firm partnership around a shared vision. And the, the partnership model itself seems challenging. And then when you combine it with what we talked about earlier, which is the monodisciplinarity, that everybody who owns an equity stake has to be a lawyer, you don't necessarily have a tremendous amount of that business experience and expertise that, Lisa, you mentioned your students bringing to the classroom. So maybe we will see some shifts as there's some generational turnover with more multidisciplinary backgrounds at the helm. And yeah, you, you I, mentioned, I just, oh, go ahead, Dave. I would just insert here that one of the, the core design elements of our practice was to always include people who were not lawyers, who had business, were business professionals, who had expertise in technology. We haven't talked at all about technology, AI, and the like, responsible AI, ethical AI, which is the S and G of ESG, but a core component. Since I came from a technology leadership position, I didn't come from a law firm. I knew the benefits that companies had in using data and analytics and technology, AI, and otherwise. And I think that's a model for firms, at least I've been approached by a lot of firms to figure out why it is that we do it that way. And it's because we speak the language of clients. ESG is its own lingua franca, and the technology data and analytics around these issues are a subcategory of that. And lawyers who aren't learning this other than if you're at least a Fairfax's course at Penn are coming out of law school, basically, what? I don't understand what that is. It's all around data, analytics. And that's not just for ESG, but all legal work today is. And so that's a substantial gap that we're trying, we try in our small way to fill. We speak the language of our clients by having people who are not lawyers, who are trained. We have folks in our group who are, who are consultants who are um, from technology companies, from ratings agencies that are in the ESG ecosystem much deeper than law firms have been. And that was the perfect segue to, you know, the podcast really focuses on the present and the future of law. And Lisa, you said short of a shock to the system, it's difficult to make change in this industry. And certainly generative AI feels like a shock to the system <laughs> that is ongoing and maybe up ahead of us. So I was listening to a conversation the other day where the participants were talking about humans' rights as being the future of a, a component of ESG, meaning the right for humans to be part of the creative process, the right for humans to be the decision makers. And we've certainly seen this with the Hollywood strike last year. We're seeing more and more incorporation in contracts of the use of AI for different creative pursuits. Do you see that, Lisa, as the sort of next generation of ESG? Or are you thinking more in the way that Dave is about AI and responsible use and ethics and biases and those kinds of things? I mean, I think it's both. You know, I, I do think, you know, how do you think about an ethical and responsible use of AI as you think about an ethical and responsible, like you, a, a lot of this is about kind of appropriate risk assessment, risk management, 
and risk mitigation. It's also though, you know, I don't want to overemphasize the risk element because it's also about taking appropriate advantage of opportunities. And, you know, too often lots of these conversations are framed as related to risk and not enough about kind of how do we open up and see other opportunities. So AI is both a an opportunity, but also a risk. And part of that risk is people failing to appreciate that AI is only as good as the humans behind it. <laughs> and there's risk there when we're not thinking through that human element. That is kind of very much still important to have. You know, I, I told people this before, my daughter uh, is getting her PhD at the intersection of data analysis and social science. And what I have learned from her is this really important piece uh, about the human element and the biases that, of course, all humans have. And the fact that people try to think about AI and other technologies and data even as kind of perfectly objective, but they fail to appreciate that, no, that there are people who collect the data, who are processing the data, who are analyzing the data. And that's true whether or not they're humans doing it or AI is doing it. And so there's always this human element and our failure is in not recognizing that and how that human element could impact the integrity of the data, the integrity of the AI. And so I think the future is always about human rights <laughs> and, and about humans and how we're treating them. And, and quite frankly, here I'll say, and it's also about a reminder um, that we all have biases. And the best way to counteract those biases is actually to open ourselves up, right? The, why do so many people in the ESG space care so much about diversity? It's because what we learn is if you don't have a conversation with diverse people, if you aren't engaging in a really diverse and inclusive way, you miss things. You miss important risks. You miss important opportunities, right? You have confirmation bias where you double down on things that confirm what you know and ignore things that seem to be completely outside of your frame of reference. And that's a problem in the AI space. And broadly, as we're thinking about how we navigate the ESG space. And, and so I, I would kind of say that's also something about the human element, the human rights element that we have to keep front and center. Yeah. And I would like to add a couple of things. One is going back to, again, I look at ESG as pervasive and ubiquitous. It's in everything that we do, including there's no such thing as AI in terms of like, so if you think about responsible and ethical AI, who are we responsible to? These, again, are well beyond legal responsibilities. These are ethical, and the definition of those would be in the S of ESG. Who is governing? What, who is using what technology in what way? How are they leveraging data? I would also say, um, on a positive note, because it all sounds risk-based and cynical, I actually am very optimistic. For the last four years, I, 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 this has not been clear sledding. It's been very challenging with COVID and, you know, people hunkered down and uh, worried about their lives. And, 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 but COVID is ESG. It's an ESG disaster. And it, it failed on environmental, social, and governance fronts. So it actually, that Black Lives Matter and all the progeny that happened in 2020, 2021, obviously that continues, but the explosion of these issues actually, for the first time, caused society who were sitting in their houses in their pajamas to actually focus on these issues, including lawyers. 
And what that brought about is transformative thinking. And what is AI? What is using technology? It's all about transformation. I was on two calls this week with major companies who are actually looking for a completely refreshed view of their ESG policies programs because they're using the impetus of the societal pressure points to convince their boards and their companies that they need to take a different tack, that what they've been doing isn't working. And leveraging this point, so lawyers stepping up where nobody else is filling the void to show leadership is exciting. This is what law schools should be helping with. We're the leaders. I I spent years in-house, and whenever there were gaps, whenever there were tricky issues, lawyers stepped in to solve the problems at the companies. It's the only group that are true fiduciaries across an enterprise who have the ability to affect change at that kind of level. It isn't chief sustainability officers. They're wonderful people, incredibly brilliant at what they do, but they don't have the ability to move things and get the budget and get an organization to do things. The only other group that does is finance. And so we're seeing significant engagement between lawyers and finance, risk management that I've never seen before and compliance departments, which are either run by lawyers or they have dotted lines to the lawyers. So with all the negativity and the cynicism and the wokeism and all that, the reality is companies are using this opportunity to clean things up, to get fresh approaches, to frame things the way that they're more accurate, more precise, the things that lawyers do better than anybody else. And the phrase, Lisa, that you were thinking about was predicting the present. Yeah. So a friend of mine came up with the great phrase, lawyers are really good at pressure testing information and challenging suppositions and statements. And that's really, when you boil it down, that's what lawyers are doing. And we're seeing, I mean, I see hundreds of lawyers doing what five lawyers did four years ago in the United States. They're learning, they're training, they're trying to figure out how to get more courses like Lisa's course at Penn into other law schools. We're voracious learners, and there's a major gap in education. And thankfully, PLI is more involved in it now. These are the important triggers that need to force lawyers to say, this is a wonderful career opportunity for you. If you're at a law firm and you can not only offer advice on a corporate transaction, but say, by the way, let's also look at the diligence around your ESG credentials. It, It provides value to the client. The client appreciates that. The client may not have thought about that. I was on a call today where we raised several issues that were not in the agenda for the client that they're now thinking about because ESG is spherical. It's not linear. And when you raise issues, you're actually, I call it back to the future practice. You're counseling clients around systemic risk. And systemic risk, by definition, is not linear. It can come at you from any place, left, right, and center. And the more that you have used the lawyer skills, of using better language. We're the best writers in organizations. We're more precise. We make sure that people can't just say things without showing them. And this is the skill set that we should deploy leverage that has been under leverage. I call it a superpower. It's a lawyer superpower that we're not using, but we're seeing more and more lawyers want to do it. Well, it's such an exciting time to be a lawyer or a law student taking classes like Professor Fairfax's. It's an inspirational note to end on. It makes me excited for the future. And I'm deeply grateful to both of you, uh, Professor Lisa Fairfax and Dave Kern of Paul Weiss for helping us demystify ESG and get excited about the lawyer's role here. And I know I join the audience in thanking you for your time. And we thank the audience for joining today. And we'll look forward to seeing everybody on a future episode of Fast Track.
Thank you for joining us on Fast Track. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation as much as I did. Visit pli.edu for more insights, education, and resources for navigating this dynamic landscape. And until next time, stay curious and stay adaptable as we work together to chart a course into an exciting future. 